Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, you are sovereign over us. What a glorious truth that is that you draw us by your grace. Again, this morning, as we start this week to meet with you on your day, to exalt you because you are worthy. And Lord, there's times when we are burdened by so many things this time of the year that we can be distracted by the to-do list and the never-ending schedules. And please forgive us for constantly putting things in front of sitting at your feet. Would you help us to do that? You are sovereign over our schedules and over this busy time of year. We entrust ourselves to you this morning. God, we pray for... uh, other churches in our community as well, not just ourselves, but we lift up Reformation Church this morning um, and ask that uh, you would be with them, that you would encourage them, and Lord, that you would uh, just grow them and use them for your purposes and for your glory. Lord, for our sister churches in the Reformed Baptist Network, we lift up uh, Rivertown Grace Fellowship down in Conway, South Carolina. Lord, that you would just encourage them as they gather to worship you, that, Lord, you would give them strength as they seek to obey you and share your gospel in that area of South Carolina. We thank you for your work amongst them and um, bringing them into the network that we could uh, be of mutual encouragement. Uh, Lord, teach us to um, how to to be better encouragements to churches in this region, uh, that you might be glorified and uh, more churches would be planted. Father, we lift up the persecuted church as well. We know that many Christians are gathering this morning, perhaps even in um, the eye of uh, governments or regimes that uh, are not fond of Christians gathering. We lift up the uh, persecuted church in Pakistan this morning and ask that you would be with them, Lord, as they um, no doubt have already gathered today uh, as they're ahead of us in time. But Lord, that you would um, guard them and protect them Uh, cause them to endure persecution, that, Lord, you would grow their faith with the limited resources that they have. But, Lord, we know that your spirit is not bound and your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Would you uh, encourage them and strengthen them? Father, we lift up unreached people groups, Lord, that we know that your desire is to send missionaries to them, Lord, in our generation, that, Lord, we would see the advancement of uh, the missions of two unreached people groups, and Lord, that the gospel would be going forth to them, that the Bible would be translated into their language, that they might hear your words of life. And Lord, we know that there's Bible-less people still on this earth, which is hard to believe, even 2,000 years, Lord, after you came the first time. And while we await your second coming, they have not heard of your first. And so we lift these people to you. We lift uh, particularly um, the uh, tribes uh, within Iraq, Lord, that have never heard of you, that we ask that you would continue to, to reach them and send missionaries to them, Lord. We thank you for more open doors since uh, in recent years there, but we ask that you would strengthen and encourage missionaries to take uh, your gospel uh, to them. Lord, we lift up um, many of the situations around the world that uh, no doubt that we are attuned to. Uh, We think of those that are refugees, um, particularly those from Afghanistan and Ukraine, that, Lord, you would be with them, that you would uh, 
that your church would meet their needs in the regions that they uh, move to. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just help us by your gospel to make known uh, your glorious truths. Uh, Lord, would you help your church to rise up and meet the needs of those around them, even though uh, they're not believers, that they would show the love of Christ and sharing the gospel with them and not just material needs. Father, we lift up the Ukraine war. We ask that you would bring it to a resolution. Lord, we know that uh, you accomplish your purposes in these ways, but Lord, it's, it's heartbreaking to see all that is going on. And Lord, that you would be with both Russia and Ukraine, Lord, as they go through this conflict, that Lord, you would bring about your purposes, draw many to, your, to yourself, and that you'd be with the loved ones um, or the people that have lost loved ones, Lord, that you would um, just, just comfort them uh, by your truths. Be with those that are ministering to them, the various organizations that are on the ground ministering to those who are wounded, but also those who desperately need help and refugees, particularly men and women and children that are fleeing the conflict. So we ask for your help there. God, we lift up... Um, just uh, the atrocities that are happening around our world, and there's not much coverage of the Myanmar, um, Burm, uh, the Burmese, uh, just genocide that's going on. Lord, there's just people being slaughtered, and God, would you just show your mercy? Would you um, cause evil to be confronted? And Lord, would you draw many to yourself through that conflict? Lord, we continue here at home to pray for those stateside that are experiencing uh, lost this time of the year. Uh, we think of those in Florida that have lost everything uh, from the hurricanes, that you would um, bring good cheer to them, that uh, our life and our joy should not be in the material things that we own, but ultimately in you, that you would cause your church to rise up and, and meet the needs of people around them this Christmas. Father, we lift up those who are sick. We continue uh, to pray that you would be with those who have the flu. We know that COVID is making another round, and even RSV for young children is, is pretty severe. Uh, we lift up the Hankins to you and their precious little one in the hospital, that you would uh, heal um, her, Lord Josie, and Lord, that you would just um, strengthen her body, that she could be um, back out of the hospital and, and with her family again, that you would give David and Elizabeth wisdom, Lord, uh, we just thank you for them, and uh, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, continue to guard and protect our congregation from the various ailments that surround us uh, in this winter season. Father, we pray continually for um, Sarah's mother, Mrs. Houck, Lord, that you would be with her and continue to give her strength uh, and the family strength as she walks through this time. Lord, we lift up Ryan Marlowe continually. We thank you for the news that he was transferred to Atlanta this uh, week. And Lord, that he's continuing to get therapy. And Lord, that he's improving day by day. Uh, what a joy it is to watch you work uh, in him and through him. Would you be with Pastor Marlowe, Lord, as he heals? And Lord, would your will be done in his life? Lord, continue to be with those that are traveling, those who are grieving this time of the year um, in various ways loss of loved ones, and that comes fresh to our minds at Thanksgiving and Christmas when there's an empty seat. But Lord, remind us of the hope of the resurrection. Remind us of the hope that you give us, that we are not to grieve like others uh, that have no hope. Um, so we 
uh, lift those to you as well. We thank you for Quinn and Rose. We continue to pray for them as they prepare for their wedding here at the end of the month. And Lord, would you give them wisdom, Lord, as they prepare. Uh, thank you for uh, just what you're doing in their lives and drawing them together. Thank you that Rose gets to uh, join here this morning and we uh, lift her to you, Lord, as she joins this congregation and then later joins uh, Quinn in marriage later this month. Father, we lift up Christ alone. Uh, church plan in Wilkes County. We thank you for Pastor Tim and Cindy, and we thank you for uh, the crew there that are just uh, constantly praying and working to the end of seeing a new church constituted. We thank you for helping us this week in a multiplicity of ways and seeing things come to fruition. Lord, it's only you, but we pray that you would provide, that you would strengthen, that you would encourage, that you would guard and protect uh, this new work, Lord, and uh, we ask for your help there. Lord, finally, for our worship this morning, would you be glorified as we um, listen to your word, as Pastor Tim brings a message this morning from Isaiah 9, would you be exalted, uh, not just in the preaching of your word, but our obedience to it, and then the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are thankful again to have Brother Tim. Uh, I was supposed to be in California this morning, and uh, plans were changed due to sickness and my family in California, so I wasn't able to go. And uh, so uh, Tim was already scheduled, and we're thankful to have him. We're thankful to, uh, to partner with him in church planning, and we're looking forward to all that uh, God will do uh, in the days ahead. Brother Tim, would you bring the message to us? Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here again. Hope you don't run out for the exits when you find out I'm up here instead of someone else. Uh, but I hope that you're ready to receive uh, with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls. So with that in mind, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7, and we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 6 and 7, but Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, so you get the context of the text and we're going to be considering the subject this morning, the promised Messiah, the promised Messiah. Stand with me, if you would, out of honor and reverence for God and his word, and listen to the word of the Lord here in Isaiah 9. And I'm reading from the uh, ESV. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his oppressor, the rod... Uh, the staff or his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for uh, this beautiful day that you've made today. We rejoice and are glad in it. And God, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather together as the saints of God to worship you in spirit and in truth and to magnify the great name of our great God. Thank you for the timely reminders that we've already had uh, in singing praises to your name of your sovereignty over our lives, whether we're up on the mountain or down in the valley or somewhere in between. You never, ever forget your people and you never forget the promises that you make to us and all your promises are yes in Christ and amen in Christ to your glory forever and ever. So thank you, God, for those things that you've already spoken to our hearts about. And now I pray that you'll take this passage and speak to our hearts and give us hope through the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, to the end that someone here today might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and those of us who are saved might be encouraged by the fact that he who came the first time according to the promises of Scripture is going to come the second time for his bride, the church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The passage of Scripture that we have before us this morning, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, is one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible concerning the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and is, in my opinion, a test is a glowing testimony to the accuracy and authority and authenticity of the Scripture, seeing that it was written some 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ, and yet Isaiah wrote as if he was an eyewitness to the life and ministry and person and work of Christ while he was on this planet. And this passage is filled with incredible hope, and I think the hope comes through in at least two main ways. Number one, when Isaiah was prophesying, when he was writing these things, he was writing during the time when the northern kingdom of Israel, which is also known in Scripture as Samaria, was in the process of falling to the Assyrians. Now, that happened historically in 722 B.C. Isaiah's prophetic ministry spanned from 740 B.C., to around 701 BC. And so the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel happened right in the middle of his prophetic ministry. Now you may say, well, Isaiah was a minister primarily to, and a prophet primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah, and you would be right. But you can't tell me that the fall of the northern kingdom didn't have an impact on the southern kingdom. And not only that, the southern kingdom itself is going to fall about 100 plus years from this time to the, to the Babylonians in 605. 597 and in 587, 586 BC. So to, to say that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light would be kind of an overstatement for Isaiah because there really wasn't a whole lot of light during his time. But so he was obviously prophesying about a future time and that future time as we know was fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus Christ to this planet. But there was a second reason why I believe that these verses are filled with incredible hope. Because we know historically that prior to the arrival of Christ to earth, there had been a 400-year period of silence with no prophetic voice in the land. Now, I want you to wrap your brain around that for just a minute. 
Four centuries without a thus saith the Lord. Four centuries without a man of God speaking forth the word of God. A silence that was broken finally by John the Baptist, the forerunner and precursor to the Messiah. And then, of course, it was broken by Christ. And so, no wonder, Isaiah said, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Can you imagine how dark our country would be 400 years without the word of God? And, and Israel was dark, man, but Jesus burst on the scene, and he is the light of the world. As John 1 says, he is the true light who lights every man who comes into the world and praise God that that darkness that people were walking in was pierced by the light of the Son of God when he arrived on this planet. This planet has never been the same, and it never will be the same, and he, ladies and gentlemen, is going to reign forever and ever and ever. Amen? And so thank God for the arrival of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. So today, as we break down verses 6 and 7 in Isaiah 9 on the promised Messiah, I want us to group it around three main thoughts. First of all, we're going to notice the dual natures of the Messiah, of the promised Messiah. Secondly, we're going to shift to the distinct names of the promised Messiah. And then we're going to close out with the divine notoriety of the promised Messiah. Let's first of all notice the dual natures of the promised Messiah. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 9 when Isaiah says this. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Isaiah there is talking about these dual natures of the Messiah when he says, To us a son, to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. First of all, he mentions the humanity of the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he said. He said, For to us a child is what? Is born. The Messiah was going to be born just like us. He was going to be born without a sin nature so that he could fully identify with us. It was necessary for Christ to take on human flesh and yet without sin to be our Messiah so that he could identify with us yet without that problem of sin that we all carry around in our lives. And as you look at the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, is there any doubt as to the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, Jesus was born like us, right? Jesus grew up like most of us. <laughs> he grew up like us. He, he ate and he drank and he slept like us. He got tired and weary like us. He suffered and he bled like we do. And he died like we all eventually will do. Jesus showed full proof of his humanity while, while he was on this earth. In fact, the one difference between him and us is this, that he did it all without sin. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Christ, the Son of God and God the Son, took upon himself human flesh so he could identify with us in his incarnation coming down here and becoming man. But not only does Isaiah say something about the humanity of Jesus, for unto us a child is born, but notice what else he says, for unto us a son is given. A son is given, which is a reference not to his humanity, but to his deity as the promised Messiah, because how else 
could he be given to us unless he had already existed? And he had existed since all of eternity past. Jesus did not have his beginning in Bethlehem. He did not have his beginning in Mary's womb. Jesus has no beginning. He has no ending on his divine side. He is not just human. He is divine. He is fully God, fully man. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we thank God for that aspect of his, of his deity. And the Bible says this about his deity. It's, it says in John 1, 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, was Jesus human when he was on the earth? And the answer is yes. We've already answered that. But was he God when he was on the earth? And the answer is yes. How else did he do what he did? How did he heal the sick? How did he walk on water? How did he speak to the wind and the waves and they obeyed him? How did he raise the dead on three different occasions during his earthly ministry? I'll tell you how he did it. Because he was not only man, he was and is almighty God. He was God in the flesh, and, and he proved that over and over again. And you say, well, well, Pastor, this is a little bit confusing. I mean, you're talking about, you're talking in these theological terms of the hypostatic union of Christ, fully God and fully human, and, and, and that's hard for us to understand. Well, yeah, join the club. Nobody can possibly understand this because no one has ever done it except Jesus Christ. None of us can, can fully identify with that. And if you think it's confusing for us, have you ever thought about the people who lived in the first century with Jesus, how they must have felt? Let me get you to use your sanctified imagination for just a minute. It's okay to do that once in a while, okay? And, and just use your sanctified imagination with me for a minute. And think, let's think about one experience of Christ. Remember the only thing we're told about him concerning his childhood, besides that he grew in wisdom and favor and in, uh, in stature, you know, wisdom, stature, favor with God and man, is when he was 12 years old. You remember that? Y'all nod your head if you remember that. You remember where he was? He was at the temple, and he was confounding the religious leaders of his day. And I want to kind of use my sanctified imagination and think about that situation and think about Jesus as a 12-year-old boy being the God-man there with those religious leaders. And let's, let's just say it kind of maybe played out something like this. They started peppering him with questions, and, and one of them probably said, What's your name, boy? And he said, Well, on my mother's side, <laughs> my name is Jesus. But on my father's side, it's Emmanuel, God with us. Well, boy, how old are you? Well, <laughs> on my mother's side, I'm just a 12-year-old boy. But on my father's side, I'm from eternity to eternity. Well, boy, uh, where are you from? He said, well, on my mother's side, I'm from Nazareth. But on my father's side, I'm straight from the throne room of God. I'm straight from heaven itself. Well, boy, how'd you get so smart? Well, on my mother's side... I've been raised in the Word of God, but on my Father's side, I am the incarnate Word of God. Well, boy, if you're so smart, can you predict the future? Well, <laughs> on my mother's side, you're going to take me and you're going to crucify me on the cross of Calvary. But on my Father's side, I am going to rise again. Well, boy, why don't you just go on and get out of here? Well, on my mother's side... I'm going to as soon as my parents realize I'm missing and they come back and get me. But on my father's side, don't you worry, I'll be back. Man, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, to think about this contrast of these natures of Christ, fully God, 
fully human, so much man as if he was not God at all, so much God as if he was not man at all, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the dual natures of the Messiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But let's move into what uh, Isaiah next mentions, and that's these distinct names of the promised Messiah. Isaiah is going to give, give us four beautiful couplets of the, uh, for the names of the Messiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. So we're going to take those one at a time, and, and we're going to start with wonderful counselor, and that is our Lord's precepts. Let me ask you this. Is there anyone who ever taught like Jesus Christ? And the answer is what? Is there anyone who ever manifested the wisdom that Jesus Christ manifested on this earth? And the answer is absolutely not. I want you to break this down in three ways. First of all, think about his teachings. Think about the teachings of Jesus Christ. Has anyone ever taught like him? Think about these things, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You know what the Bible says when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, 28, and 29 says that when Jesus finished those teachings, that they were astonished at his teaching, at his doctrine, because he taught them as one having authority and not like the scribes. There was something different, unusual, about the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a revolutionary sermon the Sermon on the Mount was. Think about his teaching in Matthew 24 and 25, known to us as the Olivet Discourse about not only the destruction of Jerusalem, but about the coming of the Son of Man in all of his glory. I think about John 14, 15, and 16, one of my favorite sections in the Bible. It's known as the Farewell Discourse. Jesus started it in the upper room, probably finished it on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, became somewhat of an ambulatory sermon, and Jesus delivered teachings to these guys that they were going to need because the very next day he was going to be crucified on the cross of Calvary. I think about the parables that Jesus threw out one after another after another, primarily in Matthew chapter 13, but in other places as well. And Jesus, the Son of God, just pouring forth the Word of God into everyone's lives. It's no wonder that when the religious leaders in John 7 they sent a little posse after Christ. Do you remember that? They sent them to arrest him and bring him back to them. And you know what? They came back empty-handed. And, and, and these religious leaders are looking at this, these guys and saying, you came back empty-handed? And they, you know what they said? They said, never did a man speak like this man. And no one ever has and no one ever will. The incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, speaking the word of God. So there's his teachings, but let me remind you of a second aspect of Jesus as wonderful counselor, and that is his tender moments. Think about how Christ dealt with individuals for just a few minutes with me, if you would. I want you to think about how Jesus dealt with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Would you or I have dealt with her like that? I can promise you this, folks, the woman at the well wouldn't be welcome in most churches. Come on, help me out. It's the truth. The woman at the well wouldn't be welcome in most of our churches, but you know what Jesus did? He took her from where she was to where she needed to be, and by the time Jesus finished counseling with her, she dropped her water pot and ran back into the town of Sychar and said, come see a man who told me everything I did. Is not this the Christ? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
I think about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And you can easily come up to me after church and say, well, you know, that's not in most manuscripts. I get that. I know that. But I'm going to tell you what, that story is just like Christ and how he handled her. And thank God that he handled her the way he did. And he didn't excuse her sin. He told her, does any man condemn you? And she said, no man, Lord. And what did he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He sent her away, a changed person by the grace of God and the gospel of Christ. I think about how he dealt with the thief on the cross, a man who had lived his life in such rebellion against God, a man who did not deserve another second on this planet. And yet Jesus is between these two thieves and one of them is unrepentant and cantankerous and rebellious. The other begins to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and he calls out to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you know what you and I would have done? I'll tell you what we would have done. We would have said, buddy, you've made your bed, you lie in it, you go straight to hell, man. You don't deserve to live. But what did Jesus say, folks? He said, he said, today you will be with me where? In paradise. Because you know what salvation is? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It has nothing to do with us. And I'm grateful that that story is in our Bibles. I thank God for the way Jesus dealt with repentant sinners. But not only that, folks, listen to me. He dealt that way with repentant saints too. You need to hear this, church. You know how he dealt with Peter? Let me ask you this. If somebody denied you, not once, not twice, but three times, how would you deal with them? How would you deal with them? Look at how he dealt with Judas. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but even with Judas, when Judas walked up and kissed him on the cheek, he looked at him and said, friend, do you betray the son of man with a kiss? He dealt with Judas differently than any of us would have, but he definitely dealt with Peter because Peter was unlike Judas. Peter was not unregenerate. He was regenerate. He was a child of God. And how did Jesus restore Peter? He did it fit firmly, gently, lovingly. Peter, do you love me more than these? And he asked him three times because Peter had denied him three times and it broke Peter's heart, but it restored Peter's heart and soul. And look who became a leader at the Jerusalem church because of the restorative grace of God in his life. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, his, his teachings, his tender moments. What about how Jesus always dealt with those traps that they were throwing at him. Remember, they always tried to trick and trap the Lord Jesus. You remember that? The, all three of the main religious groups tried. The lawyers came to him, and one of them said, well, who is my neighbor? And out of that, Jesus spun what perhaps is the most well-known parable on the planet, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The, uh, the, the Pharisees came to him and tried to trip him up with a, with a coin. Remember that one? about taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And what did Jesus do? He took that coin and held it up. The superscription of Caesar was on it. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They couldn't trip him. And then the Sadducees came along. And folks, here's the crazy thing about the Sadducees. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay, I'm sorry. That's terrible. I won't quit my day job to be a comedian, but the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection, and yet they came to Jesus about this crazy story about a woman who married a man, and the man died, and then she married his brother, and his brother, the law, the, you know, the kinsman redeemer and all of that stuff, and somebody had to come along, and if a brother was unmarried, he had to take her. Can you imagine by the time it got down to brother number three or four, I think he's wanting to hightail it out of there, right? 
because this is a black widow if there ever has been one because she's killing husbands right and left. But they made the whole story up. The story wasn't true. And Jesus looked at them after they finished this cockamamie story, and he said, you do greatly err in that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in heaven, there will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage, but will be like the angels of God in heaven. You understand that? You see, they never could trip him up because he was and is the wonderful counselor. But there's a second couplet that Isaiah uses. Not only wonderful counselor, our Lord's precepts. But look at this next one, mighty God and that's the Messiah's power. We move from the Messiah's precepts to the Messiah's power. Now, we've already talked about this in, uh, in his deity, that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We talked about his deity. But have you ever stopped to think about all the things that Jesus did? You know what John said at the end of his gospel? G John said that if you recorded everything that Jesus did, all the books on the planet couldn't, couldn't possibly hold what he did. Think about the gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, there are seven, seven signed miracles. He turned water into wine in John chapter 2. He healed the nobleman's son at Capernaum in John chapter 4. He uh, healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. He took a small boy's lunch of five loaves of bread and two fishes and fed 5,000 and had 12 baskets of fragments left over in John chapter 6. He walked on water in John chapter 6. He, raised, he, he healed a man born blind in John chapter 9, and he raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And if that's not enough for you, in John chapter 10, he looked at the religious leaders of his day, and he said, he said, I have power to lay my life down, and I have power to take it back again. Jesus died, and and he rose again. He rose again. And so he was the mighty God, the Messiah's power. His power was on display time and time again as he went through the villages and, and, and cities and, and towns, healing people and casting out demons and all of the things that he did. But thirdly, look at this third couplet, everlasting father. We've moved from the Messiah's precepts, the Messiah's power to the, to the Messiah's Pre, to the Messiah's pre-existence, his person, and his perpetuity. Look what Isaiah says. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, there's his precepts, Mighty God, there's his power, Everlasting Father, there's his pre-existence, his person, and his perpetuity. You say, how do you get all that from that one phrase? Well, I'll tell you how. First of all, he says he's everlasting. That's his person. Jesus didn't begin when he came to this earth. Jesus had already been around since eternity passed, right? So when he calls him everlasting, it's referring to his everlasting nature from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Psalm 90 not only applies to God the Father, it applies to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Amen? So everlasting refers uh, to, to his preexistence. Father refers to his person. Do you remember when... Um, Jesus was talking to his men in the farewell discourse. Remember what he said about heaven in John 14? He said, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many what? Mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. And where I know, uh, where I'm going you know and the way you know. And Thomas said, you know, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, 
I am the way, come on, finish it with me, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me or by me. Well, then Philip, he joins in the ignorant party with Thomas, and he says, Lord, yeah, we, 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 you show us the Father. Show us the Father, and it'll suffice us. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, I have been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me. He that has seen me has seen the Father. I and my Father are one is what he said in John chapter 10 and verse 30. So when, when Isaiah calls him Father, he's referring to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God, and thank God that he is. And when he calls him these two words together, everlasting father, it refers to his perpetuity. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there were always kings who would come and kings who would go. But when Jesus came along, there is no one coming after the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall reign forever and ever and ever. It is a kingdom that is never going to end. It is a kingdom not made with hands that is going to smash all earthly kingdoms into pieces. And contrary to the Islamic faith, which teaches that Muhammad came along and finished what Jesus left undone, let me set the record straight from this pulpit. Jesus didn't leave anything undone. It is finished and no no one will ever take his throne from him. He is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord above all lords and will reign forever and ever. And then finally, notice that last couplet. He says, Prince of Peace. This is the Messiah's provision. The Messiah's provision, Prince of Peace. One of my favorite terms for Christ is Prince of Peace. I don't know about you, but it is for me because he gives us two different kinds of peace. He gives peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The moment we repent, the moment we embrace Christ as our Savior, we have peace with God. That war that we are in against God, which no one has ever won and no one ever will win, is declared a truce. There is a ceasefire declared through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary. So he gives us peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans 5 clearly talks about. But he not only does that, for repentant sinners, but for those of us who are his children, he gives us the peace of God that passes all understanding. Can I have a witness out here? You may be going through some rough times right now in your life. As I said last week, you may be going through some times where you feel like Noah inside that ark, and man, you can't see a way out. And boy, he was on there for a long time, about 360 to 370 days total. Can you imagine that? You may be going through one of those dark periods in your life and you just can't figure out anything in your life. I want you to know this, that that same God who gave you peace with God through Christ when you got saved will give you the peace of God that passes all understanding and he will comfort you. He may not take you out of those afflictions, but he will comfort you during those afflictions and he will see you through. He will see you through. He is faithful, the prince of peace, peace with God and the peace of God that passes all understanding. But let me move into the final point of this message this morning, and I want you to notice what he says about the divine notoriety of the Messiah. Look at, look at verse 7. He says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Let me read that again. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it 
with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, there are people who will take verses like this and they'll lift them completely out of their context. And they'll just take these one verses and instead of doing exegesis, which is rightly dividing the word of truth and walking through the text and the surrounding context, they do what would be known as eisegesis. They isolate this one particular verse, and unbelievers do it to us all the time, do they not? And, and they'll take verses like this, and they'll isolate it and lift it away from the chapter and lift it away from the larger narrative, the meta-narrative of redemption from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, and, and they'll say, well, wait a minute. It says right there, look at it again, folks, of the increase of his government and to peace there will be no end. And they say, man, that's right there proves that the word of God is a lie because that didn't happen. Jesus came down here to this earth and what did they do to him, folks? They took him and they killed him. They murdered him on the cross of Calvary. And yeah, he rose again, but he went back to heaven 40 days later. And so as far as they're concerned, he was here, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he went back up to glory, and he kind of left us in the same mess that was here before he came. That's their interpretation of this passage. But how many of us know that we see it a little bit differently than that, amen? Because, because see, we understand that Jesus did come, and he did suffer, and he did bleed, and he did die, and he did rise again, and he did leave this earth and go back to his father 40 days later. But they leave conveniently out these facts. He left his kingdom entrenched in about 120 people, right? Acts chapter 1, there were 100, about 120 in the upper room. He infused them with the gospel of Christ. They got infused and empowered by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two. And these 120 started taking the gospel out. 3,000 added in one day, four or 5,000 more added a few days later. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands came to Christ. And these thousands upon thousands took the gospel to every corner of the planet and implanted that same seed of the gospel in people's hearts. And pretty soon, you've got Christians fanning out all over the place. Not only that, listen to me, folks. It may seem bleak with these eyes as far as the time in which we live. It may seem bleak politically and, and uh, worldwide as far as the landscape and some of the things Pastor Scott was praying about this morning. Those are heavy things that are going on in our world. And so the critics will say, man, where is your God? Where is his promise that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end? I'll tell you where it is. It's still here today. He is still reaching a people today. And right now, as we're gathered here in West Jefferson, God is bringing a people to himself out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And then when the end comes, he's coming back for us. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Praise his holy name. God always keeps his promises. And of the increase in his government, look at this, there shall be no end on the throne of David. And again, no, more, no successors to Christ's throne. 
Christ took that throne and he will never abandon it. He will never abdicate it. It will never be usurped by anyone, including the devil himself, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's still reigning right now from heaven and he's coming back and his kingdom is going to last forever and ever and ever. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm part of that kingdom. Amen. I'm glad that I can take in the words that Jesus said to Pilate when he went before him and he wouldn't really defend himself at all. And he looked at Pilate at one point and he said, my kingdom is not of this world or else my servants would fight. Jesus was trying to teach a principle there that we all need to take to heart. I know people are getting all worried about what's going on in our world and, and some are trying to go off the grid and they're trying to get out here in the woods somewhere where nobody can find them and, and they're trying to prepare for doomsday, doomsday preppers. Folks, I'll tell you what, I've already prepared for doomsday. Amen. And my covering is not out in the woods somewhere. They'll find you anyway with infrared and satellites and GPS. They're going to find you no matter what you do. Sorry to burst your bubble on that. My kingdom is not of this world. I am covered by Christ himself. And my hope is in Jesus. And I look to him and I look to him alone. So you go back to this passage and you look at it again closely. Go back to verse six and I'm winding down, I promise. For to us a child is born, the humanity of the promised Messiah. To us a son is given the deity of the promised Messiah, the dual natures. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The distinct names of the Messiah, his precepts, his power, his person, his preexistence, his person and perpetuity, his peace, the provision of his peace. And of the increase of his government, of his peace, there will be no end, the divine notoriety of the Messiah. So what can we take away from here this morning as we prepare to, for, to end this message and as we prepare for communion and then going home? Let me bring out four points of application and I'm through. Number one, what Isaiah said about the promised Messiah 700 years beforehand was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is true. Trust your Bible. Your Bible the Bible is true. And everybody said, Amen. The word of God is true. Number two, what the Bible said about the promised Messiah's first coming were 100% accurate, and so will be what it says about his second coming. Our king is coming again. Are you ready? Because Jesus said, be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man is coming. Number three, Jesus is the promised Messiah. My question to you is, is he your personal Messiah? Have you trusted him as your savior? Do you know that you know that you know that you're a child of God through repentance and faith in Christ? And then number four, hallelujah, what a savior we have in Christ. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, never has been, never will be anyone like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing me the opportunity today to proclaim 
the unsearchable riches of Christ. Thank you, Father, for our Savior, that unto us a child is born, and to us a child, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you that during this season of Advent, during this season of Christmas, that we can focus on what it's all about. Because it's not about presents that we'll get on December 25th. It's not about those gifts. It's about the gift of your son that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son. It's not about lights and they're beautiful and we, we, we sometimes glory in those and ooh and awe at those. But Father, may our ultimate awe and wonder be at the light of the world that penetrated the darkness of this planet 2,000 years ago when he came the first time. And may we draw great hope that no matter how dark things may get before, between now and the time he arrives again, that he is going to pierce the darkness again. And it is going to be amazing when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he reigns forever. So, Lord, we give you thanks. We give you praise. We give you all the glory for your son, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Our hope, Jesus, is in you and in you alone. And we pray this in your blessed and holy name. Amen.